Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Foss Corporation, LLC. Hello, friends and neighbors and Mysterians. Today's episode is going to be about UFO stories. I don't do UFO stories very often because I have a very different attitude toward UFOs and aliens and Sometimes it shows a little too much. But anyway, these are stories that I was interested in. So I thought I'd share them with you. On the surface, Dulce, New Mexico is just a small southwestern town. It doesn't even have a traffic light. The town of Dulce, New Mexico is located near Chama, next to the Colorado border. And it's on the Hickoria Apache Reservation. According to the 2010 census, the population is small, about 2,743 people. The place seems innocent enough, right down to the town's name, Dulce, which means sweet. You know there's going to be a but there, right? Of course. Dulce is a nice town, but it's one of those places where urban legends abound. And it's one of the strangest places in New Mexico, according to popular thought. We think it's because of one rumor in particular. Is the Dulce base in New Mexico a reality? Or is it fantasy? According to the most bizarre rumors, this little town is just a cap on a gargantuan underground facility that is home to unimaginable experiments and technologies. For the conspiracy theory believers, sometimes referred to disingenuously by some as tinfoil hat wearers, there's a whole world beneath Dulce, a secret high-tech one filled with aliens. To say conspiracy theories and mysterious unknowns surround the Dulce base in New Mexico is an understatement. This offbeat place has become a stronghold of strangeness and oddities over the years. And no matter if you believe in UFOs or not, you must admit that some of the stories are pretty bizarre. It's one of those small towns you might drive through and miss it if you blink. I know I lived in one up in Central Texas. However, the history of the Dulce Base in New Mexico isn't exactly known. In fact, whether it exists or not is a significant point of contention among historians and the internet. The New Mexico-Colorado border region has the highest number of reported UFO sightings and cattle mutilations. Oh, isn't that something to be proud of? Among other eerie things often linked with UFO activity in the United States. 
The mountain range that the base is said to be within has been a hot spot for UFO sightings over the years. And of course, New Mexico itself is one of the UFO capitals of the world. Dulce Base is the subject of a conspiracy theory claiming that a jointly operated human and alien underground facility exists under Archuleta Mesa on the Colorado-New Mexico border near the town of Dulce. Claims of alien activity there first arose from Albuquerque businessman Paul Benowitz. Benowitz, who earned a PhD in physics, became convinced that cattle mutilations around the area were the result of extraterrestrial intervention. He then allegedly began picking up intercepted electronic signals near Dulce, a town too small to receive such messages. Now it doesn't say how Benowitz was receiving these, if he was using some kind of radio receiver, or if maybe the fillings in his teeth were vibrating, or he just got them out of the air. And I'm not trying to make fun of it, but there is no explanation. Benowitz theorized that these signals were coming from underground and going to a target high in the sky. By the 80s, he was actively spreading the rumors of an underground alien facility in Dulce. Starting in 1979, Benowitz became convinced that he was intercepting electronic communications from alien spacecraft and installations outside of Albuquerque. By the 1980s, he believed he had discovered a secret underground base near Dulce populated by gray aliens and humans. By 1983, Benowitz's claims appeared in the popular press. The story spread rapidly within the UFO community and by 1987, ufologist John Lear claimed he had independent confirmations of the base's existence. In 1986, George Clinton Andrews discussed Dulce Base legends in his book, Extraterrestrials Among Us. In 1988, the tabloid Weekly World News, that bastion of truth often found at the checkout counter of your local grocery store, published a story titled UFO Base Found in New Mexico, which claimed that diabolical invaders from another solar system have set up a secret underground base in the rugged mountains of northern New Mexico so they can Shanghai human guinea pigs for bizarre genetic experiments. The Weekly World News story used supposed quotes from ufologist Leonard Stringfield as a source for its claims. Upon learning of the story, though, Stringfield protested, I never read such a distortion of facts in my life. Political scientist Michael Barkin wrote that Cold War underground missile installations in the area gave superficial plausibility to the rumors, making the Dulce Base story an attractive legend within ufology. According to Barkin, claims about experiments on abductees and firefights between aliens and the Delta Force place the Dulce legend well outside even the most far-fetched reports of secret underground bases. Residents of Dulce claim to have seen UFOs, 
strange moving lights, and other unexplained sightings in the area. Hickoria Apache Legislative Council President Ty Vicente has embraced the notion of a Delce base, partly in a push to stimulate tourism. And in 2016, the town hosted the Dulce Base UFO conference at the local casino hotel. According to conspiracy theorists, the Dulce subterranean base is a seven-story compound beneath Dulce that houses human-animal hybrids, human-alien hybrids, and extremely advanced technologies. They say it's even been the site of alien wars. You know, the usual. It hasn't been called the Roswell of northern New Mexico for nothing. The first claims of the base's existence date all the way back to the 1930s, but the rumors of alien intervention in the area began to gain traction in the 70s, when a former New Mexico State Police Trooper named Gabe Valdez documented unexplained cattle mutilations in the area according to the Santa Fe, New Mexican newspaper. In a radio interview, Valdez said, the evidence that was left there, you know, predators don't leave gas masks, glow sticks, radar chaff. They don't leave that stuff. Valdez made more wild claims in other interviews, including sightings of black, silent, sophisticated spacecraft and the discovery of a fetus inside a dead cow but not a calf fetus. It looked like a human, a monkey, and a frog, Valdez told the History Channel's UFO hunters. It didn't have any bones in the head. It was all full of water. Valdez thought, what else? The cows are incubating alien babies. Tim Anderson, a former police officer in Dulce, claimed to have seen a UFO in the town in the late 1990s. It lit up the whole valley and just disappeared into the rocks, he told the Santa Fe New Mexican. I just rubbed my eyes. Did I really see that? The colorful claims of the paranormal have come from many different times and people in Dulce. Never mind all that cattle stuff. Philip Schneider, a former explosive engineer employed by the U.S. government, introduced the idea of Dulce as a site of a brutal human-alien war. Schneider, who had, past tense, high-level security clearance, claimed that he helped construct a secret underground base in Dulce in 1979. There, he says, he witnessed a battle with subterranean aliens that left 60 humans dead. The alien war wages on to this day, Schneider tells the Epoch Times. Do I believe that there's an underground base under Archuleta Mesa outside of Dulce? I really don't know, honestly. This story has recently come to my knowledge. I haven't studied and investigated it very far. I just thought it was an interesting story. I've never been to Dulce and I have no plans to go there. There may be a base under that big imposing hunk of rock. There are bases under other imposing hunks of rock. Cheyenne Mountain for one. But do I believe the whole alien part of this story? You know, I try to believe, but when I when I do try to believe, 
I began walking in circles because I feel like somebody's yanking my leg. The next story is also UFO related. It's been a long-standing mystery in Australia and has been under investigation constantly since it happened. Frederick Valentich, called Fred by friends and family, so we shall call him Fred, was a 20-year-old Australian pilot of some limited flight experience. His attempts to join the Air Force were thwarted due to his educational insufficiencies, and he failed the test to become a commercial pilot several times, but his lifelong dream of flying kept him going. He disappeared while on a 125 nautical mile flight in a Cessna 182L light aircraft registered VHDSJ over Bass Strait en route to King Island to pick up a load of crayfish. Now for those of us in the south, we talking about crawdads, we talking about crawfish or mud bugs. That's for those of us in the South. This was on the evening of October 21st of 1978, which was a Saturday. His true motivation for the flight is unknown. He told flight officials that he was going to King Island to pick up some friends, while he told others the crayfish story. Later investigations found both stated reasons to be untrue. Valentich had also failed to inform King Island Airport of his intention to land there, which went against standard procedure. This lack of following procedure had led some authorities to, be to believe that he was planning his own disappearance. Described as a flying saucer enthusiast, Valentich informed Melbourne Air Traffic Control that he was being accompanied by an aircraft about a thousand feet above him and suddenly that his engine had begun running roughly before finally reporting it's not an aircraft. The description he gave at the time was that it had blinding lights like landing lights. There were belated reports of UFO sighting in Australia on the night of the disappearance. However, the Associated Press reported that the Department of Transport was skeptical a UFO was behind Valentich's disappearance. Of course they would be, and that some of their officials speculated that Valentich became disoriented and saw his own lights reflected in the water or lights from a nearby island while flying upside down. Now come on seriously. I've never flown in a private type single-engine Cessna but I think I would realize if I were flying tip over tea kettle. I mean, gravity acts the same no matter if you're upright or upside down. Anything not bolted down will be drawn downward. Even if you're belted into a seat, you will find yourself being acted upon by the forces of gravity. So the he crashed while being disoriented and flying upside down argument, well, to me, that dog just don't hunt. Over the years since Fred's disappearance, there have been witnesses come forward to say that they had seen a lone that they had seen a lone Cessna fly over their various locations around Bass Strait and that the plane was traveling in the direction of King Island. 
There had, has also been one witness who was photographing the area of sky above Bass Strait. He says he remembers hearing and seeing a Cessna overhead and traveling in the correct de direction for King Island. But upon further inspection, says he found a photo with an anomalous blob in the upper right corner. This photo, and presuming, presumably it's negative, has undergone multiple tests and procedures, but all that can be said is that the image is of a solid object. But there's more. The group, Ground Saucer Watch, based in Phoenix, Arizona, claims that photos taken by plumber Roy Manifold on the day of Valentich's disappearance show a fast-moving object exiting the water near Cape Otway Lighthouse. According to UFO writer Jerome Clark, Ground Saucer Watch argued that they showed a, a bona fide unknown flying object of moderate dimensions apparently surrounded by a cloud-like vapor or exhaust residue, although the pictures were not clear enough to identify the object. Now, back up a bit to the inverted flying scenario. Fred reported his engine was running rough, a situation the authorities blame on his flying upside down. On that type of Cessna, the fuel tanks are in the wings, which are high on the body of the plane, and they're gravity fed. Because of this, flying inverted gives the pilot about 20-some seconds of fuel. After this, the engine begins to sputter, and then it quits, and you are suddenly in a glider. And upside down, the airplane is non-airworthy to glide. The inevitable happens. It crashes. The only problem is, there was never found any debris of a crash as there should have been. Ufologists have speculated that extraterrestrials either destroyed Valentich's aircraft or abducted him, asserting that some individuals reported seeing an erratically moving green light in the sky and that he was in a steep dive at the time. Ufologists believe these accounts are significant because of the green light mentioned in Valentich's radio transmissions. Fred Valentich has been missing, along with his rented plane, for almost 48 years now. His father Guido Valentich believed, perhaps against hope, that his son was indeed snatched by aliens and that he was still alive, even believing until his dying day in 2000. Fred's family still misses him. His younger brother remembers the day when his mother came to him and told him that Fred had been in an accident apparently mother code for, your brother's dead. The brother said he constantly cried for three days. Fred also left some younger sisters behind too. Did Fred Valentich get taken by aliens from another world or perhaps another dimension? It could be. That's something I might agree with since I believe that Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yeti, whatever you want to call him, could possibly be an intermittent interdimensional being. Well, what do you expect? This is Terry's mysterious moments after all. Our last story took place over Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia, a tiny fishing village on the Atlantic coast on October 4th of 1967. The Shag Harbor UFO incident was the reported impact of an unknown 
large object into waters near Shag Harbor. The reports were investigated by various Canadian civilian and military agencies as well as the U.S. Condon Committee. En route to Toronto while flying over Sherbrooke and Saint-Jean, Quebec, at 12,001 feet from the Halifax International Airport, Air Canada First Officer Robert Ralph pointed out to Captain Pierre Charbonneau of Flight 305 that there was something strange out the left side of the aircraft at 7.15 p.m. In his report, the captain reported an object tracking along on a parallel course a few miles away. He describes it as a brilliantly lit rectangular object with a string of smaller lights trailing the object. At 7.19, the pilots noticed a sizable silent explosion near the large object. Two minutes later, a second explosion occurred which faded to a blue cloud around the object. Daryl Dory, his sister Annette, and his mother were sitting on their front porch in Mahone Bay when they noticed a large object maneuvering above the southwestern horizon. The next day, Darrell wrote a letter to RCAF Greenwood base commander asking what was flying over the water that evening as he had never seen anything like it. While standing at the wheelhouse of his vessel, Captain Leo Howard Mercy was looking at four blips on his deck of radar which were stationary. When he looked up about 17 miles from the vessel's windows, he could see the four bright objects situated in a roughly rectangular formation. The entire crew of nearly 20 fishermen stood on deck and watched the object in the northeastern sky. Mersey radioed the rescue coordination center and the harbor master in Halifax asking for an explanation and filed a report with the Lunenburg RCMP outlining his sighting when they arrived in port. The Chronicle Herald and local radio stations reported a glowing object that had been seen by many people who had called their newsroom. They reported witnessing strange glowing objects flying around Halifax around 10 p.m. On the night of 4th of October 1967 at about 11.20 p.m. Atlantic Daylight Time, it was reported that something had crashed into the waters of Shag Harbor. At least 11 people saw a low-flying lit object head towards the harbor. Multiple witnesses reported hearing a whistling sound like a bomb, then a whoosh, and finally a loud bang. The object was never officially identified and was therefore referred to as an unidentified flying object, a UFO, in Government of Canada documents. The Canadian military became involved in a subsequent rescue recovery effort. The initial report was made by local resident Laurie Wickens and four of his friends. Driving through Shag Harbor on Highway 3, they spotted a large object descending into the waters off the harbor. Attaining a better vintage point, Wickens and his friends saw an object floating from 820 to 900 feet offshore in the waters of Shag Harbor. Wickens contacted the RCMP detachment in Barrington Passage and reported he had seen a large airplane or small airliner crash into the waters off Shag Harbor. Assuming an aircraft had crashed, within 15 minutes, 
two RCMP officers arrived at the scene. Concerned for survivors, the RCMP detachment contacted the Rescue Coordination Center in Halifax to advise them of the situation and ask if any aircraft were missing. Before any attempt at rescue could be made, the flying object, with lights still showing, started to sink and disappeared from view. A rescue mission was quickly assembled. Within half an hour of the crash, local fishing boats went out to the crash site in the waters of the Gulf of Maine off Shag Harbor to look for survivors. No survivors, bodies, or debris were taken, either by the fishermen or by a Canadian Coast Guard search and rescue cutter, which arrived about a half hour later from nearby Clark's Harbor. By the next morning, R.C. Halifax had determined that no aircraft were missing. While still tasked with the search, the captain of the Canadian Coast Guard cutter received a message from R.C.C. Halifax that all commercial, private, and military aircraft were accounted for along the eastern seaboard in both Atlantic provinces and New England. The same morning, R.C.C. Halifax also sent a priority telex to the air desk at Air Force Headquarters in Ottawa, which handled all civilian and military UFO sightings, informing them of the crash and that all conventional explanations such as aircraft, flares, etc. had been dismissed. Therefore, this was labeled a UFO report. The head of the air desk then sent another priority telex to the Navy headquarters concerning the UFO report and recommended an underwater search be mounted. The Navy, in turn, sent another priority telex tasking Fleet Diving Unit Atlantic with carrying out the search. Two days after the incident had been observed, a detachment of Navy divers from Fleet Diving Unit Atlantic was assembled and for the next three days, they combed the seafloor of the Gulf of Maine off Shag Harbor looking for an object. The final report said no trace of an object was found. The Shag Harbor reports were investigated by the Condon Committee. And the Condon Committee, of course, was the informal name of the University of Colorado UFO Project, a group funded by the United States Air Force from 1966 to 1968 at the University of Colorado. They were to study UFOs under the direction of physicist Edward Condon. The result of its work, formally titled Scientific Study of Unidentified Flying Objects, and known simply as the Condon Report, appeared in 1968. The Shag Harbor Reports received extensive front-page coverage in the Halifax Chronicle Herald. The paper ran a headline on October 7th titled, Could Be Something Concrete in Shag Harbor. The article by Ray McLeod included witness descriptions of an alleged object and crash, the Air Force's search and rescue, and the Navy's underwater search that was underway, including three additional divers from Fleet Diving Unit Atlantic. The head of the Air Force's air desk in Ottawa, Squadron Leader Bain, who recommended the Navy undertake an underwater search, was also quoted saying the Air Force was very interested in the matter. We get hundreds of reports every week, but the Shag Harbor incident is one of the few where we may get something concrete on it. 
The article also mentioned UFO reports that immediately preceded the incident, including one woman in Halifax around 10 p.m. The Chronicle Herald ran another story on October 9th titled, UFO Search Called Off, stating that the Navy had ended an intensive undersea search for the mysterious unidentified flying object that disappeared into the ocean here for Wednesday night. As to what was found, the Navy stated, not a trace, not a clue, not a bit of anything. Of course, they said it politely. The story of the search being called off for an alleged mysterious dark object was also carried by the Canadian press in other newspapers. So, what was it that crashed into the waters of Shag Harbor back in 1967? Was it an extraterrestrial craft? Certainly it was a UFO in the strictest sense of the term, as no one could say with any certainty what it was. The event was 55 years ago, and it's still being debated. We may never know what truly occurred that day. So what do you think? Could there be a base under Archuleta Mesa, outside of Dulce? Could Frederick Valentich have been taken by aliens? Could the Shag Harbor UFO really be an extraterrestrial craft lying at the bottom of the ocean? We may find out these things in the future, but we may not. We probably will not. But if you believe in aliens, okay, I'll give that to you. I believe in UFOs because I've seen them. I believe in Bigfoot. I haven't seen him, but I still believe in him. So anyway, this is Terry from Texas, Terry's Mysterious Moments. That's all I have for this week. You folks have a good week.